Well, it is a real blessing and privilege for my wife Marlene and I to be here today. We've had the privilege, I think, several times of sharing God's word with you. And um, I think one time we even out in the, the lawn during COVID, and, uh, but it was a beautiful day. Uh, it's good to be here very much. We're glad to see Darren and Patty. Uh, Darren's been a very, very dear friend for a number of years, and Patty is a new friend. We're looking forward to getting to know better. And Bill and Ruth Smiley. Ruth heard I was speaking today, so she got sick. But uh, Bill and Ruth used to be, uh, Bill was a deacon in our church in Benbrook way back when Bill had more hair and my hair was darker. Um, so it's great to see them again and, and to worship with you. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn again to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read again this wonderful passage from uh, one of the great chapters of the Bible. For I, Paul, consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and seek the grace of God once again before we look at his word. Father, we thank you that while we slept, you were awake, that you watched over us with a fatherly, tenderly care. We thank you that this is a new great day of grace and of mercy. We thank you that it is a day that we can gather together with our brothers and sisters and uh, unite our voices and our hearts and our lives as we offer up to you the sacrifice of praise. We've heard many voices this last week, and as we are about to enter into a new week, verses, voices that would seek to tell us how to live and what to believe. But there's only one voice we want to hear, and that is the voice of the living God who speaks through his word. And so we come and we ask that you'd be kind to us, you have said that if your children ask for fish, you would not give them stones. And we thank you that you're pleased to give us your spirit. And so we ask that he would have unusual presence in our midst. We come in our weakness. We come in our need. We come in our weariness. And we come and ask that God would bless us and work in us. Be kind to us today, we ask, and may this day count for eternity. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We find ourselves this morning in one of the great, great chapters of the Bible. I suppose it, because it is the Bible that every chapter is great, but 
from a human perspective, some chapters are greater than others. I usually get bogged down in those genealogy passages. I certainly get bogged down in Leviticus with all of those laws and rules and sacrifices and things. I'm glad today that when we come to church, we don't have to bring a lamb or wheat or wine. Um, we just have to bring maybe whiny kids and, <laughs> and uh, a grumpy husband. But um, the most important thing we bring to church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our perfection. He is what we offer gladly and willingly to the Father. For in Jesus, the Father is well pleased. Now, Paul is writing to a church that he has never met. He knows people. If you read chapter 16, not during the sermon, but maybe later, if you read chapter 16, you can see that Paul uh, brings and sends a lot of greetings. He knows a lot of people. And, of course, he's writing to uh, the church that is the capital of the great Roman Empire. And he's writing to Christians who, for the most part, never heard of Jesus until the good news came to them. They were first-generation believers. There were no moms and dads who knew the Lord. There were no grandpas and grandmas. There were no aunts and uncles. Uh, the gospel was fresh, hot off the press. And in God's kindness, uh, many people were drawn to Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and then they were drawn together as the body of Christ. But this letter is directed to a church that is at the heart of the Roman Empire. And um, for the first 250 or so years of the Roman Empire and the church living awkwardly together, there will be at least 10 persecutions by the Roman Empire against the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to these dear people. He hopes eventually to meet them. And then he hopes that they, they might be a church that financially supports him in his missionary endeavors. He would love to go far west to a place called Spain and bring the gospel there. But before he gets there, in fact, he'll get there through the government. <laughs> they will arrest him. He'll appeal to Caesar. And uh, they will pay for his trip to Rome. And uh, God's ways are very strange at times, aren't they? But Paul's writing this wonderful letter and laying out the gospel. He tells us in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have absolutely nothing going for us. Nothing. Every person is a sinner. And every part of us is infected and affected by sin. If I had a glass of water here this morning, even if it was a big glass of water, how many drops of poison have to be in that glass before I wouldn't drink it? Uh, just one drop. And even our best endeavors are infected with sin. Uh, as the old Puritans used to say, even our repentance needs to be repented of. And we see that our prayers are our cries to God, are, are even singing these great songs of praise, how easily it is for our minds to wander. No wonder we're prone to wander. Uh, our minds are prone to water, wander. And so Paul in chapter 1, 2, and 3 just does an autopsy on the human condition 
And he says, in every part of us, there is sin. There's nothing we can bring to God that is pleasing and acceptable to him. And then beginning in chapter 3 and 4, he lays out the gospel and he says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not need the help of his mother Mary or the saints or anyone else. It is Jesus alone who saves sinners. And they come out with their hands up, their frisked down, they're patted down. And just to see if there's any hidden righteousness in them that they might be counting on. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but. And the Bible says there's no buts. You're not perfect, period. Even your righteousness is filthy in the sight of a holy God. But there's a gospel that you come with empty hands and receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And then this gospel, <clears throat> though it is not a gospel of works, but of faith alone, is a gospel that works because it is of grace and of faith. And in Romans 6, we see that when Jesus saves you, he moves in. He takes over ownership of the place, meaning me. And his spirit works in us and enables us to begin to live in a Christ-like way. And that is a progressive thing. And it will not be perfected until we see Jesus face to face. Now, in chapter 8, we, we come to a great chapter because it's a chapter on assurance. And not all four-letter words are bad. In the word assurance is a four-letter word, which is sure. Not like sure, but sure. Absolutely certain. There's assurance in our salvation. When I was a kid, um, back then, Kids maybe fought a little more than they do today. And um, I wasn't a very big guy. So we kind of had a saying, uh, don't start something you can't finish. And the good thing about the gospel is that God never starts something that he can't finish. Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that's great news because the longer you're saved the more you see why you had to be saved. Before I was saved, God saved me from my swearing, my disobedience to my parents, my fighting with my two brothers, things like that. But since he saved me, he's had to save me from my spiritual pride. He's had to save me from my impatience. He's had to save me from all kinds of things that I didn't even know were a problem before I was saved. And you wonder, are we going to make it? Are we, are, 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 are we going to be able to finish the course, cross the finishing line, and get safely to heaven? And the book of Romans tells us that this is a salvation because it's all of God, because it's all of grace, because it's all in Jesus. You're going to make it to the end. And chapter 8 is filled with all kinds of reasons why we should be absolutely sure that we're going to make it. Not because of ourselves, 
but because of the triune God who made us and who saved us and recreated us. Now, as I said, there's many assurances in this chapter, but what we want to do for the next hour or so is just zero in on one of those great assurances, and it has to do with the world that we live in. Now, you'll notice in verse 18 that Paul has done some comparative shopping. I, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody here do comparative shopping? Um, it used to be you'd check all the papers and get the coupons. Now I guess you just check your device and see what's got the best deal and so on. In fact, if you know how to do it, they'll actually deliver it to you. And all you have to do is press a few buttons and give them vital information, and they can take the money right out of your bank without you even having to open your purse. Absolutely amazing. What a world we live in. And Paul's done some comparative shopping. It's shopping that every one of us, if we claim to be a Christian, must do. Look what he says. I consider, and, and that word consider there is actually kind of a, an economic word. It's kind of a business word where he's, he's, in a sense, made two lists. And he sat down and he's considered two things. He's considered present suffering and future glory. Now, Paul's going through a rough time. He's been beat up. He's been stoned, not in the drug way, but in the stone, stone way. He, he's been whipped. He's been thrown out of more towns than you can count. He, he's, he's suffered incredibly for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now on the receiving end of what he used to give, and he used to be a person who persecuted the church and brought great suffering to the people of God. But since the Lord saved him, he saved him to serve, and part of that serving is suffering. And Paul says, I, I've totaled it all up. I've looked at both sides of the ledger, and present suffering is not even close to being compared with future glory. When um, I was born, I had a disability. And uh, for the first eight years of my life, I didn't walk. And uh, the doctors just did surgery and recovery, surgery and recovery, um, in layman's terms, dislocated hips. And back then, they kept you in the hospital a long time. And of course, I'm sure I was adorable, but I'm sure I was a pain probably in the neck, if not lower down, a few times. And um, my doctor was always a very pleasant man when he came to see me. And I'd be lying there in the bed with a body cast. The only thing you saw at the end were these toes. I'm sure they were adorable, but they were toes. And um, <clears throat> my doctor would come in pretty well every day and say, how are you doing, Don? Oh, I hate it in here. I got this cast on, and I'm itchy. There was no air conditioning in the hospitals back then. I was in Windsor to boot in the summer. <clears throat> and um, 
I want to get out of here. I want to go home. I want to, and my, my doctor would always look at me and always smile and say, Don, just be patient. One day, you're going to walk. And you know, he was right. I just had to be patient. He knew what he was doing. I just had to wait with suffering, with pain. But he knew what he was doing. And in a real sense, the Lord says, now, listen, just be patient. One day you're going to walk and you're going to live like you never imagined. Just trust me. Now, the assurance we want to look at is something that's really in the conversation today quite a bit. If you watch the news, um, it's really the old, but they call it the news. If you watch the news, you will realize that environmental problems are almost always, well, they, they get a couple of murders out of the way first, and then they go to the environment. And um, not only are you a problem, but your cows are a problem, and all kinds of other things are problems if we're going to save this world. And, and Paul says, I want to assure you, absolutely everything is under control including the planet you live on. Now, as we look at this passage today, we want to see it in the light of four things. We want to see the present, the past, the future, the present. Now, I laid that outline out so that I'll know where I'm going, and you will know where I should have gone if I wasn't going where I should be going. So I will give you little indicators as we go along, and... Um, we should be able to work through this passage and trust that by the end of it, we will be able to not only understand this great passage, but it will give us great assurance and reassurance in our hearts that absolutely everything is under control. So, my first point was the present. Okay, now, in verse 19, it begins with the word for. Now, that isn't a golfing term. Uh, that is a word that is going to say for or because or the reason is. Okay, Paul said, I've done the comparative shopping. And present sufferings don't even come close to future glory. Present sufferings are just for the present. Future glory is for all eternity. And it's out of this world. But he says, right now in the present... For the creation. Now, when the Bible talks about the creation, it can be talking about different things. Um, in this case, it is just talking about this globe, this planet. It's not talking about the people on it. It's just talking about this blue ball. If you're way, way up there and you look down, uh, this little ball that um, is stuck there somewhere. And yet it is so crucial to us. He says, right now in the present, this world, this planet, this creation, this globe that all us little ants are walking on is doing something. Now, Paul is going to use the literary device called personification. When I was a kid, I got up every Saturday morning, turned on, actually had to turn on, my black and white TV, 
and for two or three hours, I watched personification. Now, you probably wouldn't have thought an eight-year-old, 10-year-old kid would be that intelligent, but every Saturday morning, I watched personification. I would watch a little mouse standing up on its hind legs with a squeaky voice and with a girlfriend named Minnie, and it would be Mickey Mouse. And, th and then I'd watch, um, and I like that because of my name, uh, a duck that didn't just quack, but it talked quack. And his name was Donald Duck. And I watched a Bugs Bunny, and I watched a Wile E. Coyote, and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed that when we had children, they were into personification too. And now that I'm getting older, I have grandchildren who are into personification. There's Thomas the Train and Lightning McQuaid and all this stuff. It's absolutely amazing how many people are into personification. You might say, what in the world is personification? Well, the word person is in it. And what it means, it's a literary device to help us to understand and relate better that a literary device that gives person-like or human-like qualities to non-human things. Would you really be interested in a little mouse running around on its floors for an hour on TV? Not even I would have been amused. But you put it up on its hind legs, you give it a squeaky voice, you give it a girlfriend, and all of a sudden, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And what Paul is saying is that you need to understand that the planet that you're walking on right now, or in this case, sitting on, is doing something in the present. Look what it says. For, or because the reason I'm writing this in verse 19, is that the planet, the globe, this world as we know it, waits with eager longing. Now, all those words are just one word in Greek. And what it means is that this planet is standing on its tiptoes like this. And it's craning its neck and, it, and it's looking. When I was a kid, one of my favorite stories in the Bible was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And Jesus was coming. He's going like this. Can't quite see him. Climbs up the sycamore tree to see what he can see. And what he's saying is that in a personified kind of way, this planet is standing on its tippy toes. It's craning its neck. It's like what I'm like when I go to the arrival section of the Toronto International Airport and picking somebody up. I'm a pretty short guy. Cool, but short. <laughs> and so I kind of have to stand up on my tiptoes and I crane my neck and I'm looking and hoping to see who I'm picking up. Now the Bible says in the present right now that the creation in verse 19 is standing on tippy toes and, way, and craning its neck and it's looking for something. And what's it looking for? For the revealing of the children of God. Do you know what 
this planet believes? It believes in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? It's hardwired. Now, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say that it's peering and craning its neck looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. What it's looking for is the revealing of the ultimate glorification of all of God's people. Isn't that amazing? And we must always remember that. I'm convinced when they start the news, they should say, ladies and gentlemen, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. He died on the cross for sinners. He was buried. He was raised on three days, ascended into heaven. Now for the news. And then after all the blood and guts and gore and everything, ladies and gentlemen, the next greatest news announcement that will ever be made is Jesus Christ is coming again. Good night and have a good sleep. I wonder how that would affect our mental illness problems. So in the present, the creation as it is, is standing on its tiptoes, looking for the glorious revealing of the children of God. The past. In verse 20, and it begins with another for, or a reason. Why in the world does the world have to be standing on its tiptoes, craning its neck, looking for the glory Glorious revealing of the children of God. Well, because something happened in the past. For the creation, this world, this planet as we know it, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him, should be capital H, because of him, because of God who subjected it. Now, what Paul's referring to, of course, is Genesis 3. When our great, 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 great grandpappy and grandma, Adam and Eve, made the fateful decision that there's life outside of God. That they could be free to decide what is right and what is wrong. And they don't need God. In fact, God's a problem in their life. God's a restriction. God's kind of hemming them in. God's kind of cramping their style. And ever since Genesis 3, whether you're a two-year-old or whether you're a 92-year-old, your great desire is to be autonomous of God. Unless there's exams, unless there's a war, or unless you have stage four cancer. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned deliberately and willfully, they sinned in a world that was absolutely beautiful. There were no brochures for, you need to get away and go to Hawaii. Or have you had a Caribbean cruise? Because every place was idyllic. And it says, when Adam and Eve sinned, God subjected this planet to futility. Have you ever done something that's futile? <laughs> uh, the wisest man that ever lived wrote a book 
Ecclesiastes, and you know what his sermon title was? Vanity, vanity, he's not talking about a mirror in a bedroom. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And, and that word means everything is just a puff of steam. It's, 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 you go out on a cold winter's day and you go, and, it, and then it's gone. Do you know that this world isn't working like it should, not because of cows or not because of other things, and we should be good stewards of our planet. This world is not working like it should because God deliberately subjected it to futility so that it won't work like it should. Hmm. You buy a new car, you paint the house. Have you ever gone into the kitchen, got a nice, delicious apple, cut it in half, left half on the counter, and you ate the other half? And if your brother didn't get there first, when you went back about three hours later to get the other half of the apple, what did you notice? Already it was decaying. Isn't that amazing? One of my favorite hymns is uh, Abide With Me. And one of the verses says, change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. <laughs> I did the funeral of a dear friend yesterday in St. Thomas. He was 75 years old. He'd been married 51 years. And they had pictures, slides of him and his lovely wife and the children when they're young. And, and the guy in the last slides didn't overly look like the guy in the early slides. Have you noticed that? Yeah. There's something radically wrong with this world. And because it wasn't technically caused by people, it will not be technically solved by people. Now, if you have ever tried to share the gospel with anybody, our people, I thought we should have left at six this morning. The traffic jam getting into Truth Community Church would probably be horrendous. And it wasn't. Not because I was speaking, but because the words here. Where are people? Can you imagine if God left the world like it was in Genesis chapter 2? How many people would be interested in Jesus? Life would be too good. I'm healthy. I never get sick. Never this, that. No matter where you go, even if it's Thamesford or Ingersoll or Benbrook where I live, it's like Eden. And what God did in the past is he subjected this whole thing to vanity, futility, so that it won't work. Hmm. Is he cruel? No. Did you notice the last phrase in verse 20? He subjected it in hope. Hope's always future-orientated. Well, we've seen 
the present, standing on her tippy toes, the past, everything seems to not work like it should. Now the future. In verse 20, in hope. In verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Isn't that amazing? There is a day coming when God himself will emancipate this province, this, uh, this planet. It will no longer be subjected to vanity and futility and the constant trying to be a step or two ahead of problems. There's a day of great liberation coming for this planet, and it has nothing to do whether, with whether I recycle or not, or whether I stop using hairspray, or whether whatever it might be. God has made this planet so that it won't work, so that sinners like you and me will seek the Lord. But oh, there's a glorious day coming. Uh, uh, can you imagine a planet without any rotten leaves, without any storms, without any tsunamis? Can you imagine a planet without any crushed beer bottles or any used, um, well, you know what I mean, butts on the ground, without any needles, without any homeless encampments, and without any war memorials and, and long fields where soldiers fought to the death? Can you imagine a planet where absolutely everything works perfectly all the time? Well, it's coming soon to a planet near you. Isn't that wonderful? But notice what Paul says, that the future, the destiny of this planet is tied to whom? Notice what it says in verse 21. Not only will this planet be set free, from the corruption, but obtain the freedom of gl the glory of the children of God. Do you know that this planet's destiny is tied to the destiny and the future of the church? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> now, what's interesting, if you read a little history, you'll find out that a lot of people think that the reason why this world's in the mess it is is because of Christians. If we could get rid of Christians, this would be a lot better. But it's the very opposite. This planet and the future glory of the children of God are tied inseparably together. You cannot have one without the other. Isn't that amazing? That's how convinced this planet is of our future glorification. At near the end of Romans, it'll say those who God knew, those who he justified, those that he called, those that he glorified. The last thing that's going to happen to you and me is glorification and to every believer who has lived since the beginning of time. So that's the future that we're looking forward to. No wonder right now in the present, the, the planet is standing on tippy toes, peering and craning its neck and looking for the revealing of the children of God. 
because its future is tied up with my future. Its destiny is tied up with my destiny. Its liberation from all of the corruption and the change and frustration and vanity of everything is tied up with my frustration. And there's a day coming when I'll never be frustrated again. Do you know how many fruit of the Spirit will be obsolete in eternity? I won't need patience. I won't need to be long-suffering. There'll be nothing to suffer from, not even other believers. I'll never have a pain. I'll never have to kind of take my time getting up to the pulpit. Everything will be glorious. Now that brings us back to the present. So we had the present, standing on our tippy toes, the past, subjected to futility, the future, an emancipation that will be absolutely astounding. And if you want to read about it, it's in some of the Psalms. It's in some of Isaiah. Uh, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The trees will be clapping and singing. We won't even need a worship team. Everything will be entering into the praise of the Lord, won't it? And Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Uh, but we're back to the present. Now, in verse 22, for we know. And when Paul says in the book of Romans, for example, he says it's often, often, but throughout the New Testament, when we know, it is not that we put all of our collective heads together, had a great think tank, and we came up with this, because we'd never come up with it. When the Bible says, and we know, it's Christianity 101, and anything we really, really know, we didn't find out and discover, it was revealed to us by God. With all of the world's interest on the planet, they're not going to come up with this stuff, are they? Because it's divinely revealed. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pain. Now, groaning is a sign of pain. Sometimes my wife will hear me in another room, oh, and she thinks, oh, what did she do wrong? And it usually isn't that. It's, oh, I got to get these old bones up. Got to get out of bed again. Got to get, where's Dorothy with the oil can, you know, and get the old limbering up here for another day. And groaning is a sign of the pain and the weariness of living in a fallen, cursed world of being a Christian, but only in a sense partially saved. We're justified, but we're not glorified, are we? And, and there's a lot of groaning going on in this world, and, and I've been there. I've, I've been in the hospital room holding a dear saint's hands as she groans out her last. And a lot of people would like us to be convinced that that's what's happening to this good old planet. It's on its deathbed, and it's kind of, pretty soon we'll hear the death rattle. But no. I, I've been to the other place where you groan too, and that's the groaning of the delivery room. 
And that's a whole different groaning. Now, I don't tell my wife that when she was in the delivery room groaning. You learn a few things in being a husband. But groaning and dying and groaning and delivering are very different. And look what it says. For we know that right now in the present, the whole creation has been, since he could say Genesis 3, has been groaning together in the, chain, in the pains of childbirth right up until now. Isn't this amazing? We'd never know this if it wasn't for God kindly revealing it. Do you know what's going on in this planet? It's like there's contractions, like there's labor pains. Every time you listen to the news and they do get to the weather and you hear of certain things going on in the planet and we don't delight in tsunamis and hurricanes and all those things, but what we do delight in is that those are not signs of the end but signs of the beginning. There, there's a great day coming for the people of God, a wonderful day. And it's like the creation itself is in labor pains until it can give birth in a figurative, personified way to the glorious revealing of the children of God. What a gospel. It, it, it's right where we live, isn't it? And, and Paul will go on and say, you know, there's groanings in the Christian and there's groanings in the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a whole lot of groaning going on, but don't be thrown off. Uh, your redemption is much nearer than when you first began. Now, you may be here this morning, and at best, I killed uh, 40 minutes of your time. At worst, you're thinking, what in the world is this all about? What in the world is this all about? And we must see that God's in absolute control. And if you don't know him, you're to come to him. You're to come with your hands up. You're to surrender. You're to bow at his feet. You're to acknowledge your sin. And you're to say, oh, Jesus, save me from me. Save me from my sin. Save me from the mess of all of this. And much of the mess that I'm in, I've created. And oh, you just point me to a place that's out of this world. Jesus has already gone there, hasn't he? It's a place of unspeakable glory. My good friend Greg has been in heaven for 10 days. And I said in the funeral message yesterday, I said, and he's 75 years old. I said, these have been the best 10 days of his life. Can hardly wait. Can hardly wait. Come to him. And those of you who know him, don't grow weary in well-doing. Press on, persevere. There's a triad of things that every believer should be noted for. First of all, their faith. Secondly, their love. And thirdly, their hope. And hope does not disappoint as if you were a Leaf fan. But this is hope that is absolutely certain because you see the one who is on the cross is now on the throne. And the next great event in human history is the glorious appearing of the children of God because Jesus is coming again.
Amen. Amen.